Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Sarah Kenzier is one of the most vital voices in American journalism today. She is the author of The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, which is a brilliant collection of essays rooted in what is known as the American Midwest, uh, with her writing preempting the much more um, laboured coastal journalism that parachuted into America's heartland following Donald Trump's quote-unquote victory in 2016. It's an election outcome that Kenzier didn't just predict, but explained. And since then, she's been laying out the playbook of kleptocracy and autocracy with terrifyingly accurate predictions, using her expertise in former Soviet totalitarian states, particularly Uzbekistan, to illuminate the patterns of what we can now characterize as the suffocating tapestry smothering American democracy. She is also the host of Gaslit Nation podcast with Andrea Chalupa and her latest book, also a New York Times bestseller, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, documents the corrupt relationships with Russian criminals across not just the Trump administration and its, uh, you know, hangers on, I suppose, but also the FBI. Part investigative journalism, part warning, part I told you so. It's a vital read in a market heaving with Trump books, not least upcoming ones from John Bolton and Mary Trump. Welcome back to United Ireland, Sarah. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to go back a little bit because one of the really uh, interesting parts of Hiding in Plain Sight is the beginning where you contextualise your own work and your own formation as a journalist. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, yeah. How far back did you want me to go in terms of... All the way back. Uh, well, I started in journalism um, in 2000, right after I graduated from college. Uh, I worked at the New York Daily News. I was there from 2000 to 2003, which meant I was in New York um, during 9-11, covering 9-11 and also covering, uh, I, I think, the most pivotal transition in media, in modern media history, which is from print to digital. And the fact that um, breaking news was now uh, primarily through the internet, which was uh, good in some ways for audiences to get more accurate, up-to-date information, but which uh, economically bankrupted the media industry. And from there, um, you know, you saw a real transformation where this became an industry uh, aimed at elites, uh, largely staffed by people who could afford to participate in it, who could get um, expensive degrees, who could work unpaid internships uh, in very expensive cities. And, um, you know, I discuss all that in, in view from flyover country, but in in Hiding in Plain Sight, I discussed some of the uh, geopolitical and national security implications of this because it meant people like Jared Kushner uh, were going out and buying newspapers and that various uh, children of uh, political elites, of uh, corrupt individuals were working in media, framing the narrative, uh, dominating it. We're feeling the effects of that right now in the Trump administration. Uh, and I also think it's why there's been so much misinformation, sloppy reporting, and propaganda delivered to the public. Mm. What do you think is the importance of being 
um, somewhat of an outsider in journalism, uh, not necessarily tethered to any one institution or, as you say, going back to those expensive cities, like not living in that ecosystem. What kind of perspective has that given you? I think it's beneficial, um, you know, and I think one of the things that's odd to me is that I am an anomaly in U.S. media in terms of uh, national political, <clears throat> in terms of national political coverage. It's covered almost exclusively um, from New York and D.C., but there's no reason that me or anybody else living in uh, the Midwest or the South, you know, I'm based in St. Louis, Missouri, should be less informed on these issues or, um, you know, have less insight than people on the coasts. I think there's an advantage to not being in that bubble. But, um, you know, one of the reasons I was able to cover Trump and predict uh, the administration's actions in the way that I did is because of expertise I gained irrespective of where I live, which is that, you know, I have a PhD um, in anthropology. I, as, as you mentioned, I studied uh, the authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union, which unfortunately uh, proved directly um, relevant to studying kleptocracy in the United States under Donald Trump. What, what's annoying to me is just the, um, the insularity, the, uh, you know, exclusivity of the media. And this has gotten worse since coronavirus, by the way, like this is mm. already a gutted industry. We were down to about, I think, 80,000 journalists for the entire United States and about 35,000 since uh, have been furloughed or lost their jobs. Um, and a lot of, you know, smaller newspapers, have gone out of business. This problem keeps getting worse and worse. Um, and I think it's contributing in, in many ways to this broader political crisis. Mm. One of the things um, that you document in, in both books, but I think um, we're kind of going to mostly talk about hiding in plain sight here, is how Missouri is both kind of a window and a mirror of a broader American malaise. Um, can you paint a picture about what has happened there since the crash and how that speaks to the broader American social, social and political context? Yeah, Missouri historically has been the bellwether state. Um, it was called that in part because you could rely on Missouri to uh, vote for the winner of the presidential election, no matter which party it was. It would sway back between Republicans and Democrats. And in the same way, um, it tended to anticipate broader national trends. And you even find some of the seminal figures that imagined what America was or America could be coming out of Missouri. People like Mark Twain or Walt Disney or Chuck Berry, you know, people who invented these quintessentially um, American forms of expression. What we've seen in recent years for Missouri is an anticipation of decline, of the economic decline um, that began uh, in Reagan's uh, 80s with trickle-down economics, with the conglomeration of wealth um, on Wall Street and on the coast, and especially since the 2008 crash, a real abandonment of the center of the country, of industrial cities like St. Louis. Um, you know, the problems that began uh, several decades earlier got worse. Uh, they accelerated rapidly. Uh, we've also seen uh, movements for better and for worse coming out of Missouri. Uh, the Tea Party was born here to some extent, and then that led to the, you know, conservative um, extremism that helped birth Trump and give him institutional support. Uh, Black Lives Matter was spurred largely uh, by the Ferguson protests um, in 2014. Um, you know, Ferguson is right outside St. Louis City. 
And so, you know, this this is the heartland and it anticipates uh, what will happen in America nationwide. And among the things I describe in hiding in plain sight um, is the role of dark money in politics, the role of corruption in politics. What happens when you have um, an executive, in this case, the governor of Missouri, who's been indicted for crimes but refuses to leave office? Um, This is a a situation that I think we may see in the U.S. in November um, if Trump refuses to leave, should he uh, lose the election um, and and so on. So unfortunately, it's a dark kind of prophecy that comes out of Missouri, uh, but it tends to be very accurate. A lot of um, the the context of what you write about uh, is is rooted in the impact of the crash, um, kind of socially and economically. Even though you know every every country has has issues that go far deeper than that, but I do think it's interesting that there is less attention paid to the trauma that that caused people and what directions they went in after that. And we certainly kind of see that in Ireland. It's obviously very obvious in the UK and around Europe um, and particularly in America as well. Do you think that that story and the, the how that has resonated is kind of forgotten because now we're entering into another, you know, monumental um, economic collapse and recession? Yeah, I, I do think it is. I think at the time it was underplayed. Uh, you know, we heard in 2009, 2010 that we were entering an economic recovery. Uh, most people never felt that recovery firsthand. It certainly wasn't evenly distributed. Um, you know, we saw wealth basically uh, existing in very wealthy coastal cities. And I've heard the same thing uh, is true about the UK, you know, that, that places like, you know, London got incredibly, unfathomably expensive, whereas other regions were nearly um, abandoned. Uh, and, and so you've seen that same kind of uh, stratification. Big cities had their own problems with gentrification, with people um, being pushed out of the city because they couldn't afford to live there. Other places like where I live, um, you know, people come to visit St. Louis and they think that we were in a war. You know, they go down streets and there's no remaining stores. There are houses where the bricks are stolen so people could sell them for food. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, nothing, nothing happened. It was abandonment. It was apathy. And I think that, yeah, you know, it affected people differently in geographical regions. But I think what it affected most was our conception of the future and what kind of possibilities awaited us. And, you know, I turned um, 30 the year of the crash uh, in 2008, and I had had a baby a couple years before. And my entire vision of what was possible in life, which by this point had been, um, you know, sort of shrunk by the uh, catastrophes of living in America in the 21st century already. So, I, you know, I already had, you know, very few hopes for the future. Um, they were really just, uh, they collapsed. Um, and, you know, my sense of expectations in terms of, you know, what I thought would happen really diminished. But my demands from officials, my demands uh, for corporations and for ethical behavior, for honorable behavior, they increased. And I think that that's been the struggle of the last 10 years is to just realize how corrupt these institutions are, how little oversight there is, how little genuine interest there is in protecting the public, um, in our well-being, in our opportunities, and how people will keep up this charade that everything is fine until it collapses in such an open and destructive way that they can't deny it. Um, and that's happened, uh, you know, with Trump. It's happened with Brexit. It's certainly happened with the coronavirus and the way that different governments have handled it. I, I The one thing that's really changed for me is that, um, you know, five years ago, people thought I was being hyperbolic or pessimistic. 
They thought I was exaggerating about uh, the severity of these crises and about the threats that we faced. Nobody thinks that I'm exaggerating anymore. Well, that's kind of vindicating, but also depressing, I suppose. Oh, I wanted to be wrong. I I would love to be uh, the hyperbolic alarmist (laughs) that people think I am. But unfortunately, I'm just ringing a really obvious alarm. So... There's an interesting line um, in in the book uh, about the crash, like all these slights that are done done to people, that things feel out of control, that, as you say, like the future kind of evaporates, possibilities become so less tangible, but the rage stays. And I think it's kind of interesting that that anger, that, that a, a, you know, righteous anger um, that a lot of people carry, you can kind of go one of three ways. Like one, you're in a sphere of familial wealth. So, you know, your progress as a human uh, through this economic system will continue and be successful because of how that's kind of set up. The second is that, you know, you try and affect change and make things better and be a realistic pessimist or uh, whatever you want to call it. And the third is um, what we're seeing, which I might go back to uh, in a little bit, is uh, the propensity towards conspiracy um, and a a much more kind of far-right extremist perception, which has been brought on by the collapse in truth and information as well. Um, And maybe that general kind of existential feeling that a a lot of people are feeling about a quote-unquote rigged system um, but I, just about the, the the dominance of Russia um, in in the book, you know, uh, various Russian, you know, gangsters, oligarchs, you know, Putin, uh, Manafort's behavior, they kind of dominate a lot of the narrative of the book. But I want to talk about two things. First of all, the strategic importance of Trump Tower as an effective base for the Russian mafia in New York and um, Semyon Mogilevich, apologies, um, who's a character people, a lot of people in Europe may be less familiar with. Can you tell me about those two things? Because they kind of interlink. Sure. Um, well, first with Mogilevich, people in the U.S. are also less familiar with him. Um, you almost never hear him discussed, even though he was on the FBI uh, top 10 most wanted list for decades and was labeled the most dangerous person in the world um, You know, by Robert Mueller uh, multiple times, but especially in a 2011 speech. So Semyon Mogilevich is basically the head of the Russian mafia and the nature of the Russian mafia has changed with the times. Um, you know, he kind of embodies what we were discussing before with this incredible uh, economic uh, inequality, hoarding of resources, uh, white collar crime. He's the nexus uh, around which uh, you know, white collar crime, organized crime, and state corruption grows. Uh, he came out of the Soviet Union. Uh, he, you know, left it after he procured an Israeli passport uh, through Robert Maxwell, the uh, you know mobbed up publishing UK magnate uh, who turned out to be secretly a Mossad spy. I mean, the, the story, as I outlay, I lay it out in the book, is very complicated, but. Um, to make it short, you know, Mogilevich basically started uh, setting up operations outside of, uh, you know, what became the former USSR throughout the 90s. Uh, he was particularly active in New York. Uh, there was already, uh, you know, a Russian mafia stronghold in New York. A lot of it was based in Trump Tower um, starting in the mid 80s. Trump Tower uh, was basically a dorm for the Russian mafia. 
And so where these things start to collide for Trump is that in the 1980s, Rudy Giuliani uh, spent a lot of his time wiping out the Italian mafia from its stronghold in New York, um, you know, where it had been for decades. What it was replaced with was the Russian mafia who were looking for places uh, to launder their money. And so typically they do that through real estate, through casinos. And in Donald Trump, uh, who already had established Kremlin ties and mafia ties at this point, they found this perfect person. You know, he had gone bankrupt uh, multiple times. Nobody would lend to him. Uh, he needed money badly. He didn't have any morals. He didn't care about uh, breaking the law, in part because so many people were willing to uh, protect him, including seemingly people in law enforcement. And so he became a vessel for their ventures. And in turn, um, they propped him up and it became this streamlined apparatus, you know, and it, it's really not a, a Russian mafia exactly. It's dependent on the Kremlin and it helps the Kremlin. It's a a transnational crime syndicate because you're seeing people who hold multiple passports, um, you know, whether various uh, quote unquote Russian oligarchs or people like Paul Manafort or people like Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, you're seeing people move from country to country. They certainly move their money uh, from country to country and bank to bank. And Trump is part of that. And he's now remaking uh, the United States, the executive branch, uh, the judicial branches uh, through the courts and through people like Bill Barr to protect or organized crime. You know, that's what the United States is becoming. It's becoming a mafia state. One of the things that um, this kind of cuts through then is this narrative uh, that Trump didn't mean to win, that it was some kind of jape, um, possibly involving being paid less than Gwen Stefani, uh, which I suppose is one of the more TMZ theories, I guess, or, or Michael Moore jumping off point or something like that. But your thesis which makes a lot of sense considering the wealth of evidence and patterns there are to back it up, is that this um, goal uh, was a long planned endeavour and, and pulled in people like uh, even Giuliani himself or, or Roger Stone. Um, th this kind of uh, magical thinking that somebody just accidentally ends up as president doesn't really pan out. No, it definitely doesn't, especially because Trump ran for president or nearly ran five times. Uh, the first time he was going to run for president was shortly after he returned from his first trip uh, to the USSR. Roger Stone, again, um, was going to run that campaign. That was in 1988. Uh, then after that, he nearly ran in 96. He did run in 2000. He ran in 2012. And then, of course, he ran in, in 2016. He was nonetheless uh, presented as a neophyte. The media kept stressing this, that he was this outsider. He was new to politics. That's why he just doesn't understand what's going on. That's the excuse that they use over and over again is Trump is incompetent. He's not malicious or he he just doesn't understand geopolitics. And you see the same um, propaganda narrative being put out by uh, Bolton in part, but also just people um, talking about Bolton's book. They are desperate to present this as not deliberate. But, you know, for one, you see all the same characters over and over. Uh, pushing Trump toward this presidential victory. And you see very obviously how they benefit. You know, they make an enormous amount of money. Uh, you know, Russia gets sanctions dropped. Saudi Arabia gets deals. Uh, Israel gets deals. Obviously, all the people surrounding Trump, including his own family, Ivanka, Jared, um, they get deals. Lots of criminals get pardoned. You know, it works out great uh, for everybody but the American people and anybody um who believes in democracy, but also a really simple thing is, can you imagine Trump 
entering this election and being willing to lose publicly to a woman and to a Clinton. Like, it's just unfathomable that his ego and his brand and his reputation, that he would be willing to withstand that. And for what? You know, people are like, oh, he just wants more attention. It's like he he gets plenty of attention. He gets attention every time he opens his mouth. He's very good at propaganda. He was a reality TV star. Um, you know, he had all of those things. What he wanted was executive power. And, you know, one of the reasons he wants that, of course, is because as president, uh, he has declared that nobody can prosecute him for any crimes, whether crimes committed in office or crimes committed before he got into office. And that also includes um, Ivanka and Don Jr. and their crimes. I mean, they were all nearly uh, incarcerated. They were brought to court multiple times. Trump was sued over 3,000 times. He was the subject of a Treasury investigation. All of that came to a grinding halt the minute he entered office. And so that's one of the reasons he wanted in. And it's also one of the reasons uh, that he does not want to ever leave. What do you think is behind um, this refusal, kind of general refusal to not really engage with those facts? Is it uh, a kind of blind optimism matched with the gutting of investigative journalism? Um, like what, when, when, when you lay it out in, in the book and when, you know, plenty of people kind of believe, um, the same kind of things you believe to be true, what is it about media as a watchdog that is asleep at the wheel and has been? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it was American exceptionalism in the beginning. You know, this view that we could not become an autocracy, we could not become a kleptocracy, even though we already um, have had policies. You know, if you look at the founding of our country on Native American genocide, on slavery, like those are autocratic practices. They were just selectively applied, as were Jim Crow laws and other things. So I think the fact that the media is predominantly white uh, played a big role in their denial, um, you know, and the fact that they would treat Trump as a joke when he was making threats uh, where he was extremely um, bigoted. He launched his campaign on calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. Like only a, a majority white press would kind of dismiss that. But I think some of it, um, yes, the gutting of investigative journalism played a big role. You know, a lot of the material in my book comes from uh, the 1980s and 1990s when there was money for investigative journalism and journalists were investigating Trump. You know, they had uh, documented extensive crimes, illicit dealings, mafia connections, um, Wayne Barrett in particular, David K. Johnston, you know, all, all these great journalists um, from that period really laid out, um, you know, these crimes. And with the gutting of journalism came the gutting of that kind of oversight. But I also think that journalists react um, in a way to what American officials do. And the refusal of officials to investigate the Trump administration who are out not just committing crimes, but confessing to them. You know, like Trump would say, like, yeah, I committed obstruction of justice. And Don Jr. would tweet out evidence for the Mueller probe. And Mueller wouldn't um, even interview some people much less indict them. Um, you know, Pelosi was refusing to impeach. Uh, you know, we saw all of this play out. We've seen precursors of this uh, in the refusal to tackle Wall Street criminality, to tackle, um, you know, the illegal Iraq war, uh, the war crimes that were committed then. You know, this is a longstanding pattern. But I think they kind of look at the sheer scope of Trump's criminality, which really does exceed that of um, any previous administration. And they think, well, if this was really so 
bad, if you were really a traitor, if you were really a mobster, then clearly uh, the FBI would have done something about it, or the Obama administration would have warned us more precisely, or the CIA even would have intervened. None of that happened. Uh, It didn't happen because those institutions have failed us. They have failed the American people. They are not doing their job. But I think the media, um, you know, is, is kind of related to American exceptionalism, refuses to believe that that could be possible, uh, in part also because it's terrifying. Uh, and so they just kind of take their cues and then gradually realize that, yes, it is exactly as bad as it seems. And Trump is exactly uh, who he says he is. When he confesses his crimes, it's because he committed the crime. He doesn't care about being caught as long as he's not punished and because he's never Never been punished. Uh, he's very confident that he never will be in the future. Mm. When um, the election results came through, and I know that at the time you and some other people were kind of, you know, really ringing alarm bells, saying, you know, we've got between November and the inauguration to do something about this, and obviously um, everybody just kind of sat back and watched for the for the most part. But I think a lot of people felt a similar thing about like, you know, this guy is not going to leave. Um, and uh, I think as we have witnessed and seen how how compromised uh, American democracy has become over the past 20 years in terms of people being disenfranchised, voter suppression, all that kind of stuff, um, most of it very kind of racialized. And then the pandemic, um, which uh, I suppose you know, throws a lot of things up in the air, particularly around um, people gathering or processes around like that. Not that um, Trump cares, obviously, because of, of he wants to get the rallies going again. But in talking about November um, and particularly around, like it, it's it's kind of weird, I guess, because there's only a few months till the election. Um, yet the campaign seems to be somewhat dead in the water because of um, the coronavirus pandemic because Biden is such a um, an ineffectual candidate, I suppose. But how do you feel about November and what kind of warnings um, would you be ringing right now regards that? Yeah, I mean, I've been worried about November 2020 since November 2016, because once an autocrat gets into office and he is an aspiring autocrat, it's very hard to remove them. Um, And that's still the case now. And there always were all the same problems from 2016, uh, domestic voter suppression, you know, based on the partial repeal of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act in 2013, uh, foreign interference, primarily, but not exclusively from Russia, um, hackable machines, which is something that nobody wanted to address until it came out that Russia had infiltrated. All 50 states uh, had gotten into voter databases, gotten into election machines. Officials keep insisting, oh, well, they didn't do anything, uh, which I find odd. Like, why would you make that effort if you aren't going to do anything? Um, The Senate uh, Minority Leader, Harry Reid, before that election, outright said Russia intends to falsify election results. And he said that in a letter to FBI head James Comey, uh, who did nothing. But the fact that he warned in advance, I think, is interesting. Um, And then we have another problem uh, for 2020, which is, as I said, I think Trump will refuse to leave. He'll declare the election illegitimate. He will rile up his supporters. He will try to bring about violence. Trump and Roger Stone flat out said that that's what they were going to do in 2016 if Clinton uh, was declared 
the winner. They said that they would declare it a rigged election. And then Roger Stone said there's going to be a bloodbath. So this is just the same strategy again. Um, four years later, coronavirus um, makes this an even bigger problem because what it did initially back in March was prompt a very common sense movement for Americans to vote by mail so that we don't have to be in close quarters standing next to each other in line. Um, and we also don't have to have accusations of rigging like, oh, you know, people were disenfranchised because of coronavirus and so on. And the Republicans responded by wanting to shut down the Postal Service entirely, like saying we can't afford it anymore during this time of um, economic depression. The Democrats have been sort of uh, trying to put together vote by mail initiatives. It really varies on each state and that's its own problem. Um, but they haven't been as uh, cohesive and assertive as they shouldn't have been. You know, Biden, um, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to tell like what's going on with the Biden campaign because we've lost our traditional mechanisms of communicating, you know, political, um, you know, a, a candidacy. Like there aren't canvassers, mm -hmm. there aren't conventions uh, and the media gives an enormous amount of time to try Trump, but that's because, you know, Trump is uh, engaged in an enormous amount of crimes and scandals and is, you know, technically in charge of the uh, coronavirus and other things that we actually have to pay attention to. Um, but it is messy. Uh, that said, I think if it were a free and fair election, Biden would win. Um, and I think he would win pretty easily. And I, I didn't really think that was true with Clinton and Trump uh, in 2016. I thought Clinton probably, uh, you know, won, but it wasn't a guarantee. But people are very fed up. You know, I live in a state that voted for Trump uh, and people hate him. I've seen that loss of just faith in him or expectation. Uh, people are extremely frightened because of the economy, because of coronavirus, because, you know, the, uh, you know, government is ruled by a maniac. Uh, he still has support, but I would say it's not more than like maybe 20% of the population, 25%. And that's why the ability to vote, uh, to make sure every vote counts, to make sure people aren't disenfranchised, to make sure that the votes are on paper, that they cannot be, um, you know, manually changed. That's all really important um, because I do think that even though Biden is uh, a pretty lackluster candidate. People prefer him over Trump. Uh, they can't handle the chaos anymore. But whether we'll get the chance to express our vote uh, is another issue entirely. Do you think that that would have been the case had the economy not crashed so monumentally? I guess the thing that Trump has had in his back pocket because economies and markets are such weird uh, things that even when freedoms and the social good is being diluted in a country, if the economy holds up, it does seem that American voters stick with their guy. Kind of. But what we've really seen, um, you know, in the last few years, but just generally over the last like 20 years, is this giant gap between what the stock markets are doing and what the economy looks like on the ground. And that extends mm. to things like unemployment figures, like even when unemployment was technically low, a lot of people were working part time or they were working multiple jobs at once to just pay their bills or they were working for minimum wage and didn't have health care. Like quality of life has been low here 
easier for a very long time, especially since 2008. You know, a lot of these problems were there under the Obama administration and Trump came in and exploited that. You know, he, he could exploit that pain. He then did nothing uh, to alleviate it. The economy actually, you know, wasn't good under Trump unless you were a giant corporation or a millionaire or a billionaire, you know, then you were probably doing well. And even now with coronavirus, we see this incredible disconnect where unemployment in the United States is at least 16%, but the markets are soaring. Like that doesn't make any sense. We don't have any control over the virus. Um, You know, it hasn't been coming down here like it has in other countries, yet the markets go up. That doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, we really see the domination of uh, the donor class and, you know, economic elites uh, in this regard. But I think people were fed up with Trump before coronavirus hit. You know, perversely, there was a group of people um, who voted for him because they thought of him as a strong man, you know, they were really fooled by that image from The Apprentice, you know, that he was this big business tycoon. He was like a take charge kind of guy. He, he was also an outsider. Some people fell for that. And he would come in and he would make things right and he would bring back jobs. And when none of that happened, and he also revealed himself, you know, as this tantrum throwing, you know, tweeting asshole. Like people are just fed up with that. Um, And he lost some of his more rational supporters. He still has that hardcore base that will never abandon him. You know, they're like a cult. They're going to stay with him forever. But everyone else, I I think, you know, as the years went on uh, and life did not improve, they, they started to look for alternatives. One of the um, narratives that was so dominant in 2016, um, both with the Trump election and also with the um, Brexit referendum, which which was very compromised as well, was this, you know, the online aspect, I suppose, be it from disinformation from, you know, bot farms in Macedonia or whatever, um, and from the dominance, I suppose, of what can now be called like the tech oligarchs, let's say. Um, And Brad Parscale, Trump's campaign manager, who led the digital part of the campaign in 2016, has been talking about this Death Star uh, digital campaign that they have that he's, you know, pressing a big red button on or something like that. But there hasn't been much chatter about the online aspect or, you know, the role Facebook is going to play, even though apart from, let's say, the whole, um, you know, Facebook, or Zuckerberg won't, you know, stamp out the free speech that Trump has allowed, or whatever, on the internet. But that just seems to have dissipated a bit. But surely um, there's been a massive accumulation of uh, information, of data that is now going to be used in these four and a half months that are to go. Or am I... Am I missing something that that's that hasn't become a really um, big part of the discussion yet? No, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I also think that what the Trump camp or, you know, even just uh, different backers from different countries that want the direct the election to go in a particular way. I think they've been at this already. You know, they've been building up online personas. They've been spreading propaganda. I think the thing that maybe has changed since 2016 is that we know these tactics now. We don't know how to stop them. Um, And I think the average citizen doesn't know how to identify them. But we know that this happens. We know that there are fake groups, fake movements, that there are people pouring tons of money into developing, um, you know, very 
very elaborate data mining campaigns that are then used to, you know, spin a narrative. People now know um, that when they go online, they're getting a different, you know, algorithmic, algorithmically curated version of the news uh, than somebody else who's going online. Back in 2016, um, you know, plenty of people just weren't aware of this, especially older folks. They just kind of thought, oh, we're all seeing the same thing like we would if we uh, turned on the television. That's gone now. Um, and I think it's also just a real struggle to keep up with uh, changes in technology. We've seen kind of a migration off of Facebook, although Facebook is still very influential. And, you know, as you pointed out, they're not um, doing anything to stop the spread of of propaganda um, or hate rhetoric or anything on their platform. But, you know, something like TikTok for younger people, I think, is, uh, you know, a much bigger deal. Um, People don't exactly, I think adults don't even know what's going on there. (laughs) You know, I only kind of know because I have a a 13-year-old daughter. Um, But, you know, she shows me political content and I'm like, oh, well, this is, you know, very interesting stuff. And I think it's going over the heads, um, you know, of a lot of uh, older folks. And so, you know, that that's part of it. But I definitely think it should be examined more. Um, You know, Cambridge Analytica, I think, is discussed or has been discussed more in the UK, um, you know, in their role in Brexit. But what it did in the US, uh, it was briefly examined uh, by Congress for maybe in 2017, 2018, and then kind of dropped. And it's like one of these things they just expect us to accept that there are, you know, malicious uh, data mining and, you know, uh, spying companies that will make uh, composites of your profile and target you with propaganda. And we're just supposed to live with it. Like we're supposed to live with the coronavirus, like we're supposed to live with fascism, like we're supposed to live with, uh, you know, another Great Depression. There's just this sense of like inevitability. It's very frustrating. It's hard to kind of throw it off. I think it kind of goes part and parcel with how Americans have accepted uh, health care, you know, and it's only when we go to other countries and we see how other countries do health care that we're like, oh, my God, like you could just go to the doctor and then you're not in debt for months and you get treated right away. You know, all this kind of things that just seems like an elaborate fantasy to us. Like, that's why I always encourage people to really um, keep their expectations high, even if you don't think they'll be met. You know, you need to have standards, you need to have ethics or you get used to this it becomes normalized. And I think that that's what's happened um, with these cyber propaganda campaigns. One of the things that's very um, not normal, I suppose, in a really good way, is um, the the current kind of protest movement, which is ongoing, uh, that orientates in and around racial injustice. Um, certainly viewing this from afar, uh, the fact that it did seem that American society was really digging into an issue um, that has formed its country in, in kind of a toxic way and that white people were um, marching in solidarity and with empathy and protesting alongside um, African-Americans and people of colour in the US. And and of course, and the ripple effect that that had out uh, all across the world, including in Ireland. Um, like, is that making a difference? How is that changing the conversation? Um, the coverage of it seems to be lessening. I'm not sure if the protests are uh, in the same way. Will that have an impact in November, do you think? Do you think that like white America is waking up to, um, you know, uh, a legacy and contemporary uh, system of, of discrimination and crimes and that a more empathic society could emerge? 
Yes, I I think the protests are a big deal. And I do think, uh, you know, white people have been waking up to a lot of systemic injustices, um, you know, that black Americans in particular, but also uh, Native Americans, you know, any American that faces uh, state sanctioned discrimination that they've been experiencing for a long time. I think there's a few reasons that, um, you know, white people are so heavily involved in these protests and weren't, uh, for example, back in in 2014, 2015 uh, with Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. The first is that in the last four years, we've actually had enormous protests on a pretty regular basis, the biggest in U.S. history since Trump was elected. Like we had the Women's March, we had anti-gun violence march, we had a migrants rights march, we had a march uh, to get an investigation into Russia. Like these happen all the time. Um, They were often led by, uh, you know, middle class white women. And so this group of women, which is very large, and they participate in groups like Moms Demand or Indivisible, they got used to to being protesters and to being activists. A lot of them had never done that before. It was only when Trump came in. And so when these new protests emerged, they were already used to getting out on the street and having signs and getting their group together and all of that. So they were happy uh, to join in and to support it. And I do think that a lot of people have woken up uh, to just, uh, you know, blatant racism to things like, I mean, today we had a good ruling on DACA on immigration, but to just see the abuse of immigrants, uh, to see such open white supremacist initiatives from this administration, I think that that shook up um, some kind of... uh, uh, you know, white people who were who are not paying enough attention. The other thing is coronavirus, um, which has led to massive unemployment, especially among youth. So they're more likely to go out in the streets. But I think it finally showed white people like, yes, you too are disposable to this administration and to these elites. Like you mean absolutely nothing. If a hundred thousand of you die, they will do nothing. They will let you keep dying. Uh, they only care about the economy. They're not going to do anything for your benefit. You're your life can be taken from you at any time and no one will care, which, of course, is the black experience in America. It's being denied resources. It's being denied respect and being denied dignity uh, as a human being. And then on top of that, uh, being targeted by racist police, uh, you know, and not able to do anything with any sense of safety or comfort, not able to you know, drive down the street or go shopping without wondering if you're going to be pulled over for the color of your skin. And I think that... Um, that sense of, you know, that you could just be tossed away, that's finally hit home for white America. And so there is more um, sympathy for black America, more understanding. Uh, They believe, you know, things that are true, you know, cell phone cameras, of course, make a difference there, but that was true um, six years ago. And so I think it's good. I think the protests will continue. What always happens is the media loves it when there's arson or violence or something like that. And when, of course, Trump threatened to uh, unleash the military, on the protesters. They, they paid attention to that. When there are peaceful protests, they don't cover it. You know, they barely covered the protests that I mentioned. They didn't cover the Ferguson protests um, except for a few weeks. They actually went on for about seven months, um, but it was only the weeks where there was violence or fires that got on TV. And so I do think, though, that they're important because they build up these community organizations. They change people's um, perceptions. I've seen the protests spread out into parts of Missouri that are almost entirely white where you would never have seen protests five or six years ago. And I think that there is a real change um, in perception and that that's a good thing. But they're up against an aspiring autocracy. So, you know, this battle um, is not going to be easy. Mm. Before you go, I want to float a theory I have um, about uh, not 
the next American president, perhaps be that uh, another uh term for Trump or Biden. But the one after that, one of the things that has been floating around for a long time um, and that has kind of been batted off as a bit of um, silliness is uh, the QAnon communities and conspiracies. Um, and so I just have this kind of a bit of a, you know, idea that if if there's always another bigger, more menacing clown waiting in the wings, that the trajectory of the American presidency could potentially become um, a real cult conspiracist figure. Now, we obviously we know Trump is a conspiracist as well, but somebody who's uh, much more pronounced in that way. We see QAnon um, conspir- conspiracy theorists running uh, for office now. And um, I was just wondering what you think about that. Is it, is it being overlooked too much or am I just doing a conspiracy in a conspiracy? No, I think it is being overlooked and I think it's important. Um, you know, QAnon, when it first came out, the minute I saw it, I was like, my God, they're taking things that are real, like actual yeah. uh, giant, you know, scandals and, and evidence of corruption and they're inverting it so that Trump becomes the savior of it. Like, for example, the Jeffrey Epstein uh, sex trafficking espionage network is completely real. And that was something that QAnon was interested in. And they ignore the part where, you know, Trump was accused in court of raping a 13-year-old procured by Epstein. They ignore his own connections to Epstein and Maxwell, but they're not wrong that it existed. They're not wrong about the rest of it. And, you know, but instead you get things like Pizzagate. You get that same kind of uh, scandal, you know, covered up in something that has uh, big grains of truth, but that is false. And so I think the best way to deal uh, with QAnon is for everyone to tell the truth because our own officials on quote the good side, they're not telling the truth either. They're not being straightforward about Epstein, about Trump and Russia, about past uh, state crimes, you know, whether Iran-Contra or the 9-11 aftermath or the war in Iraq. Like the reason people are feeling paranoid and full of conspiracy theories is because they have been lied to or given, you know, partial narratives for a long time. You know, we haven't had hearings. We haven't seen justice. That builds on people. And so it's hard to, uh, you know, kind of take somebody out of the QAnon cult. But I think a general, you know, dedication to honesty, uh, to the pursuit of justice, like wherever the chips may fall, not a partisan kind of pursuit, that could go a long way. um, Because I've watched people enter the QAnon world just looking for answers to really puzzling political phenomena and getting sucked into this wormhole. And then they come out with things like, you know, JFK Jr. is secretly alive and leading the revolution, you know, they, they go from a, a logical step to, you know, something that's much more far-fetched uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if people are inquisitive. I actually think that's a good thing, but it's really easy to be manipulated if you're both inquisitive and you're very worried and you're looking for reassurance. And the model of QAnon is trust the plan. Um, and I encourage everyone to not trust the plan from any of these political actors, you know, look for evidence, look for justice, look look for truth, you know, look for accountability. And I think that 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 will hopefully take people far. Sarah, keep up the great work. And thanks so much for joining us on uh, United Ireland Byline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 